Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so um, as I mentioned a little while ago, we're going to explore this uh, issue of the inquiring mind on war and peace, the second of our three weeks exploring this after seeing the film The Welcome last week. Um, how many people have, have looked through this, have, have read the issue? A few, okay. I, I didn't expect that most of you had, but um, I, I do encourage you to read it. Um, very provocative. I know when I, actually when I first saw the issue, I didn't, I had forgotten what, it, what the theme was going to be, and when I first saw it, I thought, oh, well that's kind of depressing. Uh, <laughs> but, as I've read it, yeah, it's, it's, at some of it is depressing to just go into how human beings can hurt each other and kill each other, but it's also um, so important to understand and not turn away from from what is such a, a major part of the human species. And to understand it, the more we can understand it and understand what our relationship is, what our perspective is, um, the, the more we can um, wisely and skillfully um, understand the Dharma and the ways to liberation. The, the first truth of the Buddhas is their suffering in the world. And the more we can uh, look directly at it and see its causes and uh, its, uh, its ceasing, uh, the happier we'll be. So this goes right to the heart of the matter of how people can be so um, hurtful, cruel, and what needs to be done in the face of behavior that is um, unacceptable. And what's the right thing to do from the spectrum of being committed to pacifism and nonviolence to another mm, legitimate dharmic response of responding and mm, addressing violence and cruelty uh, in a way that stops further violence and cruelty and is force a legitimate response for that. 
so uh, it, it made me think, and actually it was, uh, it was very compelling. Uh, I, I've read about, uh, oh, two-thirds of the issues so far, and looking forward to, to reading the rest. But I wanted to bring up a few of the, the topics with you and see what you think. Mm. And as you perhaps know, the first precept, the first practice guideline that is given to lead um, a, a life aligned with Dharma values is uh, harmlessness, is to refrain from killing. However, it's not, as with all of the precepts, um, it's not a, um, a black and white kind of a thing. They're guidelines for a mindful life. We, if we take medicine for our, uh, our sickness, for illness, we are killing organisms. I came across, uh, actually, uh, just talking with a friend who's a teacher who um, doesn't, who refrains from taking um, antibiotics uh, because he doesn't want to kill the the bacteria inside. So there's no right or wrong in this, uh, but to see where we're at with it is, uh, is what the Buddha's invitation is. So the, I wanted to sh- start with a little bit of Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, article, which I highly recommend. Uh, he sets the tone for it all. War and Peace, A Buddhist Perspective. And uh, I'll read to you the, just the very beginning so you uh, get a sense of what was going on in the Buddha's, in the Buddha's lifetime, the first couple of paragraphs, In the century preceding the birth of the Buddha, Northeast India underwent sweeping transformations that profoundly reshaped the region's geopolitics. The older tribal states gave way to monarchies ruled by ambitious kings who competed for dominance, leaving behind trails of blood and tears. The Buddha's native land, the Sakyan state, became a tributary of the kingdom of Kosala, and late in the Buddha's life, the cruel king Vidudaba, rogue ruler of Kosala, massacred the Sakyans, leaving few survivors. The state of Magadha, with its capital of Rajagaha, where a lot of the Buddha's discourses take place, became the nucleus of a new empire. So this was going on right in the Buddha's time, right where he was. You might think, oh, the Buddha must have had just such a wonderful life. There he was preaching the Dharma and, and, and protected from the insanity that we go through here today. He was right in the middle of lots of wars. This kind of gives you another perspective. How many people were aware of that? 
one, just a couple. And to think, so these were his teachings, very clear, very strong, saying where happiness lies. And his first precept is happiness, a foundation for happiness is harmlessness. I'll just read a a little bit more. The Buddha's discourses give us glimpses into the tumultuous tide of the era. They tell how, and this is a quote from the discourse uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, Majjhima 13, men take up swords and shields, buckle on bows and quivers, and charge into battle where they are wounded by arrows and spears, and their heads are cut off by swords and they are splashed with boiling liquids and crushed under heavy weights. And again, rulers, uh, we read of battlefields marked by, quote, clouds of dust, the crests of the standards, the clamor and the blows. Rulers obsessed by lust for power, executing their rivals, imprisoning them, confiscating their property, and condemning them to exile. This is right in, in the, uh, the discourses. And then the, the Buddha says, here's from the Dhammapada, all beings fear violence, all fear death. Using oneself as a criterion, one should not kill or cause death. And there's a, a couple of stories he points out so there was uh, one where um, up in the uh, heaven realms, in the, in the devas, in the deva realms, a battle between the gods and the, uh, and the uh, what are called jealous gods or titans. And the gods win, capture uh, this, uh, the head of the, um, of the titans, Vipachiti, and bring him to their city, their city and uh, the the servant of the of the god king urges the master to punish his foe, but the god king Saka insists that patience and forbearance must prevail. And it's quoted: "One who repays an angry man with anger makes things worse for himself. Not retaliating, one wins a battle hard to win." And then there's a Jataka tale. If you uh, aren't familiar, the Jataka tales are these kind of uh, teaching stories with um, that supposedly were of Buddha's uh, of the Buddha's f- earlier lifetimes in various uh, various forms in various animal forms and and uh, it's kind of uh, teaching stories that are now used with and that were used with children as well as, the, uh, as adults in the culture. But in one Jataka tale, <clears throat> um, the, in the Mahasilava Jataka, there's the story of a king who was determined never to shed blood, even though this required surrendering his kingdom and becoming a prisoner of his enemy. So he says, okay, I'm not going to resort to violence and he lets the kingdom be taken, and then he becomes a prisoner. But, as all good stories 
in the Jataka go, through the power of loving kindness, the king manages to win release, transform his captor into a friend, and regain his kingdom. Sounds good, right? Apocryphal. I don't see any leaders other than maybe Nelson Mandela who just passed or uh, just somebody extraordinary like that who would say, well, our, our main response to force is loving kindness. How do you think that would go over in, uh, in Congress? Mm. So in the real world, Metta only works so far. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi makes the point that governments are responsible for protecting citizens, creating safety and a feeling of security. And, uh, and so the question comes, well, what do you do if you're, uh, if you're a dharmic you're leading a dharmic life, but it's your responsibility to protect to protect the citizens if you are a dharma king. And he makes the point that in the teachings, nowhere in the teachings, in the, the Buddhist teachings, in the Pali Canon, is... Um, is force condoned. There's only teachings that say um, hatred should, uh, cannot be overcome with hatred. Hatred can only become by, by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. One should, uh, which sh- should not respond with violence. Uh, last month or, uh, or so, in the last month or two, when I was doing that Sutta series, and one of the discourses that we explored was the simile of the saw. If you weren't here that that night, the simile of the saw is leading up to the fact that um, you should always keep uh, um, loving kindness in your heart, even if somebody is sawing off your limbs. Advanced loving kindness. (laughs) You should not respond with hatred. And this is to say that to, uh, to see through hatred, it might not mean that you just say, oh, thank you for doing it, but you're, but you're trying to keep your heart um, free of hatred. And still, you should try to keep loving kindness and compassion in your heart. So that's the extreme where the Buddha says, only says respond with love and uh, and don't um, he never condones uh, any use of force. Bhikkhu Bodhi makes the point, okay, let's get real here. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who, if you're not familiar, is the premier translator of the Pali Canon, the uh, the number one translator who's translated the, all the middle-length discourses and the, uh, the uh, Anguttara Nikaya and the Samyutta Nikaya 
He knows the polycanon probably better than anybody alive. But he's also very practical and very um, courageous and very much of an activist. He's been an inspiration for me because he's a real activist saying this isn't about, uh, about just letting everything be okay the way it is. We've got to go and make a difference in the world if these teachings are going to have any value. And he says, even though it doesn't say that in the Pali Canon, to use force, there are clearly times that it's necessary and called for. And he presents in this article, what he, he talks about the, libera- the liberative framework and the pragmatic karma framework of how to hold the teachings. The liberative framework is if you are truly going for liberation in this lifetime, if you are committed to, um, to not creating any kind of negative karma in the mind and the heart and for liberation, okay, then follow the letter of the law and uh, perhaps become a, a monk or a nun and, um, and don't cause any kind of suffering or harm. But then there's the pragmatic karma framework in which he says that um, you have to look at the situation and karma is based on intention. And if your intention is not to cause harm, but to minimize the suffering around you, then there are, um, one can make the case for exceptions to that hard and fast, never to use force. And I'll read a a little bit of his argument. Um, The test of integrity here is not unwavering obedience to moral rules, but a refusal to subordinate them to narrow self-interest. In time of war, I would argue, the karmic framework can justify enlisting in the military and serving as a combatant, providing one sincerely believes the reason for fighting is to disable a dangerous aggressor and protect one's country and its citizens. Any acts of killing that such a choice might require would certainly be regrettable as a violation of the first precept, but a mitigating factor would be the Buddhist psychological understanding of karma as intention, whereby the moral quality of the motive determines the ethical value of the action. Since a nation's purposes in resorting to arms may vary widely, just like a person's motives for participating in war, this opens up a spectrum of moral valuations. When the motive is territorial expansion, material wealth, or national glory, the resort to war would be morally blameworthy. But when the motive is genuine national defense or to prevent a rogue nation from disrupting global peace, moral evaluation would have to reflect these intentions. And he says... For instance, if uh, another example, if a policeman in pursuit of his duty is compelled to shoot a killer to spare the lives of innocent people, would we not consider his action commendable rather than blameworthy? 
hesitantly, I would have to adopt this later, this latter position. And then he says, perhaps their in, intention, perhaps intention is to serve as guideline rather than as moral, uh, moral rather than moral uh, absolutes. I believe we must simply do our best to navigate between the different complexities of the human condition, rigorously examine our own motives, and aspiring to reduce harm and suffering for the greater number of those at risk. So he's saying, clearly, you've got to think for yourself here, as the Buddha often suggested. Okay, so that's his article. I'm going to mention just a couple of others, and then I want to have a discussion with us. A second article that really moved me uh, was an interview with this woman, Anne Wright, um, who was uh, 13 years in the Army and 16 years in the State Department. And while she was in the State Department uh, serving as the Deputy Chief in Mongolia, she started reading some Buddhist texts in Mongolia. Because as it turns out, before uh, China took over Mongolia, it was a very strong center of Buddhism. And she wanted to uh, understand the culture more and more. So she started reading these Buddhist texts. This is after 13 years in the army and 16 in the State Department having very strong ideas about might and and the the proper use of force. But as she was reading these Buddhist texts, something started changing inside of her that she couldn't ignore. And she's been a peace activist for the last um, dozen years or so. And when she was asked in the interview, well, what, what started causing the change? What did you read or what did you hear that made you reflect on, on uh, the perspectives you were holding? Here she says, um, one commentary reminded me that all actions have consequences that nations like individuals ultimately are held accountable for their actions. And in particular, the Dalai Lama's um, commemoration of the first anniversary of September 11, 2001, given in 2002, where he said, this is what did it for her. Conflicts do not arise out of the blue, His Holiness said. They occur as a result of causes and conditions, many of which are within the antagonist's control. This is where leadership is important. Terrorism cannot be overcome by the use of force because it does not address the complex underlying problems. In fact, the use of force may not only fail to solve the problems, It may exacerbate them. It frequently leaves destruction and suffering in its wake. And what she started to reflect on is seeing 
the law of cause and effect. In particular, it made her start connecting the dots and say, well, why were we attacked? I mean, this probably occurred to you when, if you lived through 2000 and, uh, September 11th, 2001. It probably occurred to many people uh, it was really bad. It was really awful. It was really heinous a thing to do. But were, what could have been the underlying causes? And that hadn't occurred to her before. And she realized that nobody in the government was copping to the fact that, as the, the Dalai Lama says, conflicts do not arise out of the blue. And she realized we were not understanding our part in this whole crazy world of terror. And the more she started seeing how we were not willing to take ownership of our participation in this, that actions have consequences, have con- actions have consequences, etc., etc., the more she started seeing, oh, this is how it keeps on playing itself out. And little by little, the more, sh- more reading she did in Buddhism, and she became a Buddhist, the more she became an activist and was one of the few people in the State Department that resigned over uh, uh, the war in Iraq. She said, this is not right. And she received a lot of heat for it. And now her main cause is um, speaking out against the drones. And I want to read just one more passage from this article because it really uh, shook me when I read it. And I think it's important for everybody to know this is going on. The issue of assassin drones has been a big focus of my work over the last two years. The U.S. now has the ability for a person at Creech Air Force Base in Nevada to sit in a very comfortable chair and with a touch on a computer assassinate people halfway around the world. Every Tuesday, known in Washington as Terror Tuesday, the president gets a list of people, generally in countries with which the United States is not at war, that the 17 intelligence agencies of the United States have identified as having done something against the United States for which they should die without judicial process. The president looks at brief narratives describing what each person has done and then makes a check mark beside the name of each person 
he has decided should be extrajudicially killed. It's not George Bush, but Barack Obama, a constitutional lawyer no less, who as President of the United States has assumed the role of prosecutor, judge, and executioner, an unlawful assumption of powers, in my opinion. Americans as a society think we are good and generous and that we respect human rights, and yet we are allowing our government to use this type of assassination technology to destroy people half a world away. And many of them with the drones, uh, innocent civilians. Taking that in, taking that in, I'll read, uh, I won't read anymore, but uh, some of the articles that I, I highly encourage you to read uh, are about the pros and cons of bringing mindfulness to the military. There's uh, a few really um, provocative articles, a few by those who are bringing mindfulness to the military and saying, making the very valid argument that when you teach mindfulness to somebody, to a person who is about to go over and serve in their country, serve for their country, which is, can be a euphemism for kill, um, that if they are mindful, they will have more clarity in discerning what they're doing and because they'll have more clarity and not be reacting out of um, fear or hatred, uh, they have less PTSD and will probably cause less unnecessary suffering than otherwise. And there's a, some work that they're doing with PTSD and these poor guys and women who come back from the military. And uh, mindfulness, it turns out, has a very um, positive effect. Uh, they say that a lot of the PTSD comes from the stress of being in combat can make some um, some people in the service do things that are ethically um, um, uh, harmful and uh, and 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 cruel, and for a while they lose themselves, as we've seen these reports of these guys who go berserk. And it's not that that's who they were before they went into the army but that the main PTSD is when somebody then does something that's unethical besides their actual uh, fulfilling of duties. And that if, they, if that can be mitigated, 
then that's a huge benefit. And so some of the people who are teaching mindfulness to the military says, say, well, didn't the Buddha say to lessen suffering wherever we can? And if this lessens suffering, then it seems like it's a, a, a positive, valuable thing to do. Then there's a few very compelling ar- um, arguments and articles um, saying this is not something that um, a Dharma practitioner should do to teach military people to be better killers. Um, and another article around the power of nonviolence and the, the consequences that come when you put somebody uh, into a position where they're breaking precept. So this is, it gets very, very complex. Now when I was, I was growing up, um, you know, I, I didn't go into, uh, I, I tried to get out of the draft. I grew up in, uh, you know, in the Vietnam War, it was when I was a, a teen and late teen. And the last thing I could see, could imagine, was going around the world, the other side of the world, and shooting at somebody. And so, like many people, I did what I could to get out of the draft. I was a school teacher, which got you out of the draft at that time. And uh, I also would have gotten out because of physical uh, situations. I'm my eyesight, I'm basically blind uh, without glasses and, uh, and, and flat feet and stuff like that. But I, I couldn't imagine shooting at somebody. And yet, when you look at those guys from that movie last week who were there fighting for their country because they really believed, they really wanted to support, they really wanted to do the right thing, and 18-year-olds are the, the optimal age, 18-year-old men are the optimal demographic for soldiers because there's an idealism, there's an invincibility, and there's a, a, a sense of adventure and a lot of testosterone, and, so, and their minds can be easily shaped. Um, and a lot of those guys went over with the best of intentions, guys and women, the best of intentions. And uh, as we saw last week uh, in that film, still trying to process what happened. When I was, when I was young, actually, uh, I was, a, I think, a natural pacifist. I remember my when sometimes we'd have in my in our apartment in New York City, and uh, when there'd be some uh, some a, a roach coming, all of a sudden appeared, and my my mother or my sister, uh, usually it was the, one or two of them, uh, pulled out a can of Raid, and you know got the roach, or if there were more than one, got roaches, and. I would do this bug dance on uh, which they laughed at uh, all the time, and I would ju- I go on the 
the ground and be imagine what it was like to be that roach dying of aid of of raid and going oh you know and i was i was doing it actually as my mirror neurons were firing like crazy and just oh and they would just kind of you know laugh oh my god you're you're off the charts sensitive you know so it, it but it did make me wonder as i was reading this and what i want to uh, have you reflect on yourself is um, first uh, could you see yourself actually I'll, I'll invite you to close your eyes and just reflect inside And there's no right or wrong in this, so uh, no judgment one way or another. And it's something that I've had to, I've asked myself uh, in recent times. Could you see yourself using force or using violence to defend or protect yourself? Could you see using force to protect someone else in danger? Could you see shooting a person who was in danger, who was endangering others? This happens all too commonly in this world. People who never could have imagined being in war, people in Syria now, let alone in the Sudan or other places. Could you see yourself shooting someone to protect somebody else? And if so, what do you think its impact would be on you? And if you went through something like that, how could you process it? How, what would be in your imagination, the way that you could process that. It's hard to just project and imagine, but there's millions of people around the world that are trying to go through that process within themselves. And just to have some empathy or imagine the compassionate with a compassionate heart what that must be like okay
Okay, and then what I'd like, we have a, a little bit of time just to uh, turn to um, one or two people around you and uh, just discuss this for, uh, for a few minutes. Uh, could you see yourself? And what do you think it would be like? Or anything else that might have come up from, from the conversation? And then we'll, we'll come back together uh, for the last few minutes. So just turn to somebody near you and uh, let, the, let the Dharma hold the conversation, the Dharma in your heart, and then we'll come back. And just have a couple of minutes. Any observations or um, insights that um, feel useful to share as we as we close? Yeah, let's see, Jackie, bring that. Raise your hand. And uh, thanks. Thank you. Um, you the first article you mentioned about that it. It, in a way, could be just depending on the cause of a war. Mm-hmm. That th- th- that would be all right. Depending on the cause of a war, it could it could be okay to protect innocent people to kill innocents. Couldn't we apply that same thing to the drones and say it, a lot of things could be going on, and it's really hard to judge. But if the president of the United States say could prevent thousands and thousands of deaths by taking out a couple of people, would that not also be just? And is it really, isn't it difficult for us to put ourselves in that situation and say, well, we know that it's wrong. I, I think probably these lists are so long that we can say it is, but I, I don't know, and I have a hard time with that. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's true. One, uh, one can make a case for, and, and I'm not saying what's right and what's, what's wrong, um, she makes the point that a lot of times um, drones are uh, destroying a lot of innocent lives and don't don't actually get the target, and we are so so uh, immune or inured to um, to feeling the compassion when you're just seeing something on a screen and it's impersonal that there is a price to pay for that dehumanizing. But yeah, one, one could, and obviously, uh, you know, that's, that's the thinking on their part. It's just complicated. It, you know, it's true. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, wait, hold on just one second. We should get going. Put it right up to your mouth. Right, right close. That's it to say, but I don't think pol- the politician's main job is to be moral. The politicians, I, I mean, I, I happen to like Barack Obama, and yeah, I think he believes up. in many, many things that are right, but mm-hmm. I think as, as the President of the United States, he has to have a, a certain, he has to represent a certain power in this world, and so he, he has to do it, whether he likes it or not. And most po- uh, politicians uh, presidents have to be the head of their country, and they have to be uh, present power. And uh, it's sad, but that's the way they are. And I think it's the people outside of the government, people that are activists, yeah. that uh, don't, rep- don't that don't have that responsibility, are the people that are going to uh, 
influenced, like the people that were against the Vietnamese War. Those were the people outside of the, the government, outside of the warriors that made us come around to seeing mm-hmm. that it was not right. Yeah. That's what I have to say. Thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's probably as good a, a, a case as any, that if you feel something is not right inside, that you, you speak up for it and are a voice. It's complicated. It's very complicated, especially with not only politics, but feeling as, as you're bringing up what's right and what's their, what's their duty. Um, so I bring this up not to make any moral judgments, just to have us reflect on this because this is a, a very central part of the human experience. Hurting each other, defending each other, protecting and feeling, wanting to feel safe. So um, we're just looking more deeply at things that we we generally uh, turn the other way about. So, thank you. Okay, so it's, it's time to go. Let's just have a very quick dedication. So, with all of this, uh, just uh, no conclusions, just um, appreciate that you're opening your mind and your heart to to look deeply at these issues like this and to have a heart as wide as the world that can hold it all. No blame, just seeing and understanding. And may all beings find inner peace. May all beings feel safe. May all beings know the highest happiness. And may our coming here together um, be of benefit to all beings and the merit shared for the benefit of all. Okay, thank you. Do pick up a, an, an issue of uh, the inquiring mind and uh, take a look through it. Next week, uh, Barbara and Alan Sanaki, who's uh, former head of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship will, uh, as and was a co-editor, will be uh, here exploring this one last time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.